You're listening to Meeting on the Mound with Jake Ryder. Ugh, like butter. Love it. (laughs) Welcome to Meeting on the Mound. I'm Jake Reiner. As the year 2020 comes to an end, it is our distinct honor on this show to commemorate the 100-year anniversary of the founding of the Negro Leagues dating back to 1920. To help me do just that is the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, Bob Kendrick. Bob, thanks so much for joining us for a meeting on the mound. Oh, Jake, man, it is absolutely my honor. Thanks for inviting me. Amazing. So just a little bit about you and the museum, and then we'll get right into it. So you've been the president since March of 2011, but you've been a part of the museum since 1993, just three years after John Buck O'Neill, the legendary Negro League star and first African-American to coach in the major leagues, founded the museum in Kansas City, Missouri in 1990. It's the world's only museum dedicated to preserving and celebrating the rich history of African-American baseball and its impact on the social advancement of America. Does that about sum it up for you? That's pretty much it, man. I started as a volunteer. It's been a labor of love for now almost 27 years, nine years, as you mentioned, as president of this great organization. But who knew? You know, you go from being a volunteer and you discover a passion, and then that passion turns into a career path. You can't foreshadow. You can't foresee that coming. It just happened. And and it's It's been an amazing journey for me, just as it's been an amazing journey for this museum, now 30 years old, because, Jake, no one gave the Negro Leagues Museum any chance of succeeding when we built this thing 30 years ago in a little one-room office. It started in a little one-room office about a fraction of the size of my office, (laughs) and, and Buck and other Negro Leaguers who were still with us at that time, man, they literally took turns paying the monthly rent to keep the little office open. So that's how we got started. And so we are as grassroots an organization as you will ever encounter, but they had a passion, a dream, and a dedicated few who felt like this story deserved to be told. It needed to be preserved. and, And we started down this course and we haven't looked back since. I want to talk to you about that passion because I can hear it in your voice. You've got such a great voice. Um, I just, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to have you talk the rest of the way. Um, But you, you once said uh, one of the silver linings about the Negro Leagues was that it was a league born out of segregation that became the driving force for social change in America. Now, the concept of this podcast in its most basic form is to appreciate the game of baseball. And I feel we can't fully and truthfully appreciate this game without recognizing how the Negro Leagues influence baseball, American history, and the history of the rest of the world. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Because I think a lot of times, Jake, and, and I've seen this over the course of the time that I've been involved with the museum and folks who come to experience the Negro Leagues Museum, I think in the back of their mind, they think they're going to be introduced to a sad, somber kind of story. Because they understand, too, that this story is propped against the backdrop of American segregation, a horrible chapter in this country's history. But out of segregation, 
rose this wonderful story of triumph and conquest, and it's all based on one small, simple principle. You won't let me play with you, then I create a league of my own. And, and, and that was it. They never cried about the social injustice. They went out and did something about it. And, and there's something very American about that. Mm. And so even though America was trying to prevent them from sharing in the joys of her so-called national pastime, it was the American spirit that allowed them to persevere and prevail. And, and so they just kind of built their own league and created a playing ground for some of the absolute best Black and Hispanic athletes to showcase their world-class baseball abilities. And I found it so fascinating because there were so many things that came out of the Negro Leagues that not a lot of people knew. And some of the things that I learned for the first time was, and you mentioned it in your uh, storied uh, clips of the history of the Negro Leagues, which is a great series on YouTube. You should go check it out. Um, it's it's just all Bob all the time. And uh, but, but a couple of things that I learned, which were fascinating, which was that uh, the Negro Leagues brought baseball to Japan for the first time in 1927. It had a lot to do with the success of the African-American economy at the time in America. And um, a couple of other things, it allowed international players of color to come play in the United States because they didn't have anywhere else to play. It introduced night games in 1930, five years before the major leagues did. And then a couple of other things, batting helmets and shin guards. Yes, so absolutely. you've got, I mean, just everything that, I mean, you, you just sort of take for granted today in the game of baseball. Not a lot of people know where that came from. And it's, and it's fascinating and incredible to hear these stories. It's eye-opening for the more majority of the people who come to see us. You know, because again, but what it, what it does, Jake, it just reminds us that American historians have done us all a tremendous disservice. So as you can well imagine, the people who come here to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, and I don't care what color you are, they are amazed by what they learn. And to be quite frank, they leave a little bit dismayed by the fact that I just now have an opportunity to learn this. You know, why didn't I know this when I was in school? And, and the answer is quite simply, American historians did us all a disservice. They kept this wonderful piece of baseball and Americana away from us. So countless generations of us went through our own formal educations without knowing one of the most significant chapters, not in baseball history, but in American history. And, and so, yeah, it is eye-opening for a lot of people when they learn that it was indeed the Negro Leagues that helped make this game the global game that it is right now, because they would take baseball into Canada. They were oftentimes the first Americans to play in many Spanish-speaking countries. And as you mentioned, they would take professional baseball to Japan, whereas the historians credited Babe Ruth and his All-Stars. But it was actually a team called the Philadelphia Royal Giants who would go to Japan seven years before Ruth and his All-Stars ever stepped foot in Japan this team was there, and really, man, they became early U.S. ambassadors. The Japanese absolutely adored them, and, and, and they didn't go over and try to beat the Japanese team. And, and keep in mind, the Japanese have been playing baseball 
but they had not seen professional baseball until 1927. And so they didn't try to beat them as bad as they could. They taught them the game. And as a result, the players and fans adored them. As a matter of fact, the Negro Leagues is really given credit for jettison this, this kind of great love that Japanese have for the game of baseball today, professional baseball today, that spurned the Japanese professional leagues. And, and as a matter of fact, Ruth and his All-Stars did what a lot of people would have thought that the Negro League players would do. When they got there, they were showboating and made a mockery <laughs> out of this thing. But see, you got to understand, man, the Negro Leagues were accustomed to barnstorming. And they knew that you don't ride into the town, beat the town team as bad as you can. Why? Because you want to get invited back. This is a payday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's awesome. Yeah. You know, it got me thinking because obviously, you know, if I had my way, I would want to learn more about the game of baseball growing up in, in, in school and uh, spend a little less time on geometry and statistics and Y equals MX plus B, I would have much preferred to learn more about the Negro Leagues. Of course, we knew, you know, we learned about the civil rights movement and Jackie Robinson, but that only skims the surface of what uh, the Negro Leagues meant to American history. And as we look back 100 years ago when the Negro Leagues was founded by Andrew Rube Foster in Kansas City, I want to get your perspective as you look back and you think about where we were then versus where we are now, what sticks out in your mind? Well, as I sit here in my office, literally a stone's throw away from the Paseo YMCA where that historic meeting took place, right around the corner from where we operate. And as a matter of fact, Jake, we have designated that historic landmark as the home of the future Buck O'Neill Education and Research Center. So we're in the process of trying to save that historic landmark that played host to that epic meeting of Rube Foster and seven other independent black baseball team owners who took matters into their own hands. Again, you won't let me play with you. We create our own. And black folks had a tremendous love of this game. Always have. And the Negro Leagues gave them something that they felt so proud of. You know, it was shared with others, but it was inherently ours. And, and, and again, it was born out of segregation and, and, and it was a tremendous source of pride. And as you alluded earlier, it helped become a catalyst for black businesses in this country. And, and truth of the matter is, if there is a bittersweet aspect to the overall story of the Negro Leagues, it lies in the fact that you can directly parallel the rise and fall of the Negro Leagues with the rise and fall of black economy in this country. And to a great extent, black economy never recovered from losing the Negro Leagues. So again, as I oftentimes express, what was good morally, what was good socially, was devastating economically. And, and again, there's always a cost for progress, always. And for black businesses, it paid a dear cost for what was deemed progress. But as we fast forward today and we look at what happened as a result of integration in our game and this pipeline of great talent that moved into the major leagues. And sometimes people will ask me, well, you know, was the talent really that good in the Negro Leagues? And, 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 and all I do now is tell them to just stop. Stop right now. <laughs> <laughs> stop right now and think about who the two greatest living major leaguers are. And I don't think, Jake, you'll get much dispute about this. 
I think Willie I know Mays, who you're going to say. Willie Mays <laughs> and Henry Aaron. Yep. Yeah. They are the two greatest living major leaguers, and both of them come out of the Negro Leagues. And, and so when my dear friend, someone who I have the utmost admiration and respect for, the great Monty Irving, Hall of Famer, legendary star in the Negro Leagues, when he says that I played with Willie Mays, and he did with the New York Giants, he mentored Willie. He was almost like a surrogate father to, to Willie Mays. And I played against Henry Aaron. And neither of them is Josh Gibson. <laughs> it just makes you wonder, man, damn, how good was Josh Gibson? Yep. And, and we missed that. We missed that. And, and But, it, you know, what we talk about here, and Buck O'Neill so beautifully and eloquently phrased it, here we celebrate the people who built the bridge. You know, so typical in our society, we celebrate the people who cross over the bridge. Uh, that's, that's the way we do. But here we celebrate the people who built the bridge, the people who gave and created the opportunity for Jackie Robinson to transition into Major League Baseball and for other stars like Henry Aaron and Willie Mays and Ernie Banks and Roy Campanella and later on Roberto Clemente and Bob Gibson, these kinds of legendary stars. And I tell people all the time, can you imagine our game without them? Mm -mm. And no. if you can, you can imagine what it was like before 1947, because they didn't learn, Jake, how to play baseball after 1947. <laughs> Man, they were playing great baseball well before 1947. So you've got to be able to at least consider that maybe there were some guys who were better than the guys that got the opportunity to go over, you know? Yeah. And, and so it... And part of our mission, along with preserving the history, is also to try to heighten interest within the African-American community around the sport, a sport that we have such a proud legacy in, yet we're not really playing it anymore. And, and as a result, we've seen the numbers dwindle at the major league level. Yeah, we have. We definitely have. And it's it's a point that I that I definitely want to get to uh, towards the end, just to sort of look at where we're going now from now on, uh, you know, past 2020. But you brought up an interesting point about Jackie Robinson that I wanted to discuss with you, because a lot of people know that uh, on, you know, April 15th, 1947, yeah. Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier uh, with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And a lot of people know that he was specifically chosen to be that guy, not just because he was a good ball player, which he was, and he became a, a Hall of Fame baseball player. But he obviously, but he wasn't the best player in the Negro Leagues, and he was chosen for his personality, and he, you know, would not fight back because. You know, Branch Rickey knew what was coming to him, and yeah. and Jackie obviously knew that as well. And so they needed the right type of personality. Yeah, you, and you know, Jackie's story as it relates to professional baseball starts here in Kansas City. He, he begins his illustrious career in 1945 with the great Kansas City Monarchs. And, you know, it, it, I tell people all the time, someday somebody's coming to Kansas City. Some great writer is coming to Kansas City because there are, I mean, man, Jake, there are stories waiting to just jump onto the big screen, you know, because you, they, they're too good. You can't make them up. Right. And I don't know if the Monarchs owner, J.L. Wilkinson, realized that he was signing the player 
that was ultimately going to put him out of business because Jackie would spend the 45 season here in Kansas City. At the end of that 45 season, he would be signed into the Dodgers organization. As you well know, he spent the 46 season in Montreal and then in 1947 would make that monumental walk on the field as a member of the Brooklyn Dodgers, forever changing the game of baseball, but more importantly, forever changing this country. But you're right, Jackie was not the best player in the Negro Leagues, and by no stretch is that to disparage Jackie Robinson, because Jackie Robinson is one of the greatest athletes in American sports history, man. He was a four-sports star at UCLA. And believe it or not, baseball was his weakest sport. <laughs> he was a much better basketball, football, track athlete than he was baseball player, Jake, some say, an even better tennis player. So there was nothing that Jackie Robinson couldn't do. It just speaks to the immense talent that was there in the Negro League. I still can't wrap my mind around that. The fact yeah. that baseball was not his best sport and he that turned was, out to be and he's one of Hall the of greats. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Hall of Famer, man. And, and that tells you, again, the kind of exceptional athlete. And that's what you always hear me when I talk about these players, that they were great athletes who played baseball because the more majority of them could have played anything. Matter of fact, I just posted a, a picture of Ernie Banks. Uh, they're out in San Francisco. He's with the Harlem Globetrotters. And they're out on the street, and he's leading an exercise routine with the Globetrotters. Well, a lot of people didn't know that Ernie Banks did a tour with the Harlem Globetrotters. He was an outstanding basketball player. you know. And there were other Negro Leaguers who were outstanding basketball, football players. And, and Jackie was that kind of exceptional athlete. But again, he was the right guy. He was the right guy to be the first. Because you have to understand, the first guy cannot fail. If the first guy fails, Jake, there is no second guy. So there's an immense amount of pressure on making sure that you get the right guy. And, and Jackie, you know, this was out of character for Jackie to take this kind of abuse. You see, Jackie was a very fiery, fierce competitor. As the late great Buck O'Neill would say, Jackie could duke and would duke. He'd knock you on your rump. You got to remember now, he had been nearly court-martialed from the U.S. Army for refusing to give up his seat to a, a white officer. So this was completely out of character for Jackie to take this kind of abuse. But he humbled himself for the greater good. And Jackie had what I like to refer to as the intangibles that better prepared him to deal with the racial hatred that he would be confronted with. So he had been a celebrated collegiate, an all-American football player at UCLA. So he had a little cachet surrounding him. And so he's college educated. He had served in the military. He's disciplined. He would become married to the beautiful Rachel Robinson. So he's stable. All of those attributes will be called upon to deal with that racial hatred. Keep in mind, when he walks out on the field as a member of the Brooklyn Dodgers, man, he's called everything, but as my mother would say, but a child of God, <laughs> when he walked out on that field, when he came up to the plate, man, they knocked him down continuously. When he would slide in the second base, he'd come up wet where the opposition had spit on him. When the opposition slid in the second, they came in spikes high, tried to cut him. They did everything imaginable to break Jackie, but Jackie would not break. You see, some of those other Negro leaguers who had been so 
very acclimated to segregation. They couldn't handle it. So had you thrown a black cat on the field when Willie Wells walked out on the field, his natural instinct would have been pick that black cat up and throw it right back where it came from. But then all the naysayers would have said, see, I told you they couldn't handle it. But if Jackie can't play, the naysayers would have said, see, I told you they weren't good enough to play in this league. So Branch Rickey did indeed have a dip, double difficult task of identifying the right guy. But as I tell people that, you know, Jackie was the right guy. That doesn't mean that there weren't other Negro leaguers who could have done it. But man, you got to be right on on that first one or, or there is no second. It's a perfect segue into what I wanted to talk to you about, because one of the things that I didn't know was that there were other teams, other organizations that were looking into breaking the color barrier before Jackie Robinson around that time. And two of the teams that you mentioned uh, are the Washington Senators and the New York Yankees. And what I found fascinating about that it was is that it wasn't entirely racially motivated. It was more economically <laughs> motivated. And I kind of want to, you know, let you take the torch from here and, and tell us so, what, 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 what gives. Yeah, we did that segment where I said, whenever they say it ain't about the money, Jake, it's <laughs> always about the money. And, and so Clark Griffin in the early 1940s was looking at Buck Leonard and Josh Gibson because the Homestead Grays were playing in D.C. at that time, and they were filling up Griffith Stadium. As a matter of fact, they were outdrawing the Washington Senators. And so he's watching Buck Leonard play a dazzling first base, and he's ripping line drives all over his ballpark, and then he's watching Josh Gibson hit balls where no more mere mortal has <laughs> ever hit them. And, and so he tinkered with the notion of wanting to sign those two black stars because he understood that if he were to sign them, his Washington senators move instantly into contention for, for winning a pennant and, and likely would have won a World Series with those two. I mean, they were dynamite. But the other, the juxtaposition of this was, number one, he knew that he would stir up the ire of his other owners. And, and the other side of the equation is, if I put the Negro Leagues out of business, I'm going to take away a source of revenue from me because right. as they are filling up my ballpark, I am getting a percentage of the gate and likely all of the concessions. And so as he weighed those two scenarios, I think he finally just said, no, nah, it ain't worth the risk. I'm going to stay with the money. And so he backed off and the timing probably wasn't right yet. What gave Ricky the opportunity essentially was World War II. And so if you were going to point to a solitary event that likely led to the integration of baseball, it would have been World War II. And so now this growing sentiment, because you've got all these black soldiers dying, fighting the same racism in another country that we're being asked to accept here at home. And so the sentiment was growing. Well, if they can die fighting for the country, why can't they play baseball in this country? And so the Yankees connection here is that Mayor LaGuardia in New York was also one of those who had been inspired by that sentiment. And he was putting pressure on the Yankees to integrate this game. And Larry McPhail, who was the president of the Yankees at that time, and we were able to acquire this letter that he sent Mayor LaGuardia. And Jake, the letter is written 
with a very racist singe to it, but there was some elements of historical facts, you know, as it related to, and, and basically the case that he built was, if we sign black players, we are going to put the Negro Leagues out of business, which he was absolutely right. Then he'd go on and say, well, you know, they lack the faculties to play in our league. Now, I don't know when you had to be a Rhodes Scholar to play baseball, but that was you. <laughs> <laughs> But then he gets to the crux of the situation. In 1945 alone, the New York Yankees made over $100,000 off the Negro League. Now, $100,000 is pretty good change today. $100,000 in 1945, and it was a whole lot of money because they were renting Yankee Stadium. Across the river in Newark, they were renting Barrett Stadium. And here in Kansas City, Blues Stadium, because the Kansas City Blues were their minor league franchise. The Monarchs were playing in all of those stadiums. And they were getting that percentage of the gate. And again, likely all of the concessions. So they were not willing to lose that source of revenue. You know, that's $100,000 in 45. Yeah. Right. And they didn't have to really do a whole lot to get that money, you know? And so the Yankees were one of the last teams to integrate when they signed Elston Howard away from the great Kansas City Monarchs. I know you don't need to hear this from me, but I just feel like it needs to be said. Just thinking about how Jackie Robinson had to be this sort of perfect yeah. citizen, yeah. could not have any faults could not stumble. When you look at all of the, the players, all the white players that were in the major <laughs> leagues and how crazy and outlandish they were, I mean, could you imagine like what would have happened had Jackie Robinson acted, you know, like himself, like you were saying? Yeah. And and not only that, the, the you know, the economic implications, just the, the, the odds were stacked against these players. And it's just so... So much more remarkable, the perseverance and the the ability to not only face all of that, but to perform exactly. and perform at a high level. Exactly. It's just, you can't even wrap your head around. No, no, it's, it's, it's almost unfathomable because you're right. Jackie was asked to be something that his other teammates weren't. And as I remind people all the time, he couldn't stay in the same hotel as his teammates. He couldn't eat in the same restaurant as his teammates, but he was expected to walk across those lines and compete at a level equal or exceeding his teammates. And then Jake, he is literally carrying 21 million black folks on his back when he walks across those lines. Because again, if he fails, an entire race of people fail. And so Branch Rickey was very conscious of this because you're now dealing with the stereotypical depiction of black athletes. So he had to have someone who he felt defied those stereotypical depictions. Well, Jackie Robinson walks into a dugout, man, where he was likely the most intellectual being in that dugout. Yeah, Jackie yes. had gone to Pasadena City College and gone to UCLA. I'm not sure another Dodger has stepped foot on the college campus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You know, um, you, you mentioned Josh Gibson, and I think we, we do need to talk a little bit about him because he is, if he, if he played in the major leagues, I, I think that a lot of these records that we now, you know, hold dear, you know, the, the home run record in, uh, you know, set by Babe Ruth and then surpassed by 
Roger Maris. And then, you know, years down the road, you got Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, and then Barry Bonds, who hit 73. But in 1936, Josh Gibson hit 84 home runs. And so, which is like, it's, you know, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's and, 11 more home runs and, than, and, than Barry Bonds and Mark, you know, Mark McGuire. And b- before I toss it to you, I just one of the one of the great things uh, from that storied uh, series that you did that I that I loved, which was I had heard that Josh Gibson was was called the Black Babe Ruth. But I think my my new favorite nickname for Babe Ruth is now what? The Black Josh Gibson or the White Josh right. Gibson, I should say. The White, Josh, the white Gibson. Josh Gibson, you know, and I understand the comparisons because what they're trying to do is help link someone that you do know in the major leagues with a skill set that matches the players from the Negro League. So it's not out of disrespect that people call But he, But he was a combination of a a bunch of Hall of Famers. And what makes it even special, Jake, and I tell people contemporarily, if you wanted to get an understanding of the physique of Josh Gibson, think Bo Jackson as a catcher. That's Josh Gibson, man. Yep, yep, that's a great comparison. Freakish athlete. He, you know, if he had been playing today, he likely would never catch. He was too good of an athlete. They probably would not have put him in that position for that wear and tear, although he had such a great arm. We're not talking about a good catcher. We are talking about a great catcher who put up tremendous power numbers. But as you mentioned, he didn't just hit for power. He hit for average. Lifetime batting average of 354. And in head-to-head competition against major leaguers in countless exhibition games, hit over 420. Hmm. And, and Jake, I, you know, people will want to diminish the records in the Negro League saying they're incomplete. But I don't care where you turn, what portion of the globe, wherever Josh Gibson played, he hit. And he put up tremendous power numbers. And, and so it doesn't take a rocket science scientist to figure out that this man can hit. And, and, right. and he swung a 40-ounce, 41-inch bat, man. Uh, no, no, serious. And, and when you see the pictures <laughs> of it, he ain't choked up. He ain't short. He ain't, he's not choked up. He's got it gripped down below the knob. But as Buck right. said, unlike most power hitters, Gibson didn't have a long looping swing. He was quick, short, compact, and the ball just exploded off of his back. Right. Another player I want to highlight, one of my, I actually remember doing, I think a book report or some sort of history report on Satchel Paige. (laughs) And, And it was such a joy to like get to know who this guy was and to get to learn about how good he was. And as you put it, the greatest pitcher of all time. And even when he got to the majors at in his forties, he was still getting hitters out. Yeah. And then he, and then there was a there was a hiatus, and he comes back in his late fifties <laughs> and still is getting. You know, he pitched three innings yeah. and, and got, yeah. uh, you know, struck out a batter and gave up a hit. Um, but I, I just wanted to, to to get your thoughts on Satchel Page, and then if you could please tell us the the gum wrapper story, yeah. I'd love that story. I had actually heard that one before, no. just about his pinpoint accuracy. Yeah, and, and that's what made Satchel so great. You know, Satchel Page to me is arguably the greatest pitcher this sport has ever seen. We know for certain the oldest rookie 
in the history of Major League Baseball. Now, Jake, Major League Baseball says that Satchel was 42 when he finally got his opportunity to pitch for the Cleveland Indians in 1948. Uh, Cleveland, you may recall, would win the World Series, and many thought Satchel should have been named Rookie of the Year. He goes 6-1 and one with a 2.4 ERA his rookie season with Cleveland in 1948 at age 42, which means he was likely closer to 52 than 42. Satchel never told his real age. And quite frankly, I don't think Satchel knew his real <laughs> age. And, and that is not far-fetched, man, because there were a lot of people, particularly those born in the Deep South, who did not know how old they were. Because most folks were born, and particularly Black folks, born at home to a midwife. And so that birth record would typically be kept in the back page of the family Bible. And man, it might be days, weeks, months, years, if ever, it was taken to the courthouse and officially recorded as a birth record. So a lot of people really did not know their age. And as Satchel would whimsically pose the question, how old would you be if you didn't know how old you were? And that age is simply mind over matter. If you don't mind, it don't matter. But in his prime, they clocked his fastball at 105 miles per hour. And, and I always tell my guests here at the museum what really made him so special. And as you well know, 105 is pretty doggone special. But right. 105 with pinpoint control made him virtually unhittable. Yeah, you know, he didn't warm up in the bullpen like most pitchers do throw it to the catcher across home plate. Satchel would use a stick of foil chewing gum wrapper. This is the honest to God's truth. The catcher would sit that chewing gum wrapper on top of home plate. And wherever the catcher moved the chewing gum wrapper, Satchel right over the top of that chewing gum wrapper. And as I mentioned, Old Satchel said he worked both corners of that chewing gum wrapper, man. <laughs> and, and so he couldn't throw it as hard as he once did. But now you got to remember, now you're measuring Satchel by Satchel. So, yeah, he couldn't throw it 105, but he was still in his low 90s at an ungodly age for a pitcher. As a matter of fact, the game that you mentioned, 1959, when Charlie Finley, I'm, not, I'm sorry, 1965, when Charlie Finley brings Satchel back, to pitch for the Kansas City A's. And the old man is believed to be 59 at that time. If you believe that he was born in 1906, which I absolutely do not. (laughs) (laughs) And he pitches three shutout innings, as you mentioned, against the Boston Red Sox. Great trivia question. 1965 Boston Red Sox, who got that long hit off of Satchel? Hall of Famer, but it's not Ted Williams. Hmm. Gosh. I can't. I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking old time yeah, Boston yeah. Red Sox players, Carlton Fisk or something like that. Close. Or Very close. Carl Yastrzemski. Yaz is the only guy to get a hit off the old man. Yaz got a double against the old man. Satchel left him at third, shut down everybody else. Over three of the most remarkably pitched innings in baseball history. Rico Petroselli was on that 65 team. He's a young player, just as Yaz, young players on the Red Sox at that time. Petro told me, he says, Bob, 
we all went to the plate hacking away at that old man. They thought they were going to light this old dude up. And he says, Jake, at that time, Satchel's fastball was still 86, 88 miles an hour, and he's painting the black at age 59, which means he could have been 69 years old. As great (laughs) as Greg Maddox was, Maddox barely threw harder than that. You know what I'm saying? He was even when, yeah, that. even when he first came up, yeah, absolutely. And and, yeah. and Satchel, who had been a premier power pitcher, now as he got older, he got crafty, but he never lost that control. He could always put it where he wanted to put it, and he was able to get guys out at a ridiculous age for any pitcher of any elk. <laughs> so we we obviously satchel page josh gibson jackie robinson you mentioned willie mays hank aaron we know the um the most notable players to come through the negro leagues but i'm wondering if there's a player in mind that you constantly bring up to people that visit the museum that you could share with our listeners that maybe people don't know yeah. and and kind of tell us why, why you think that person and that player is so, so special? One, one of the names that immediately comes to mind for me is the great Martin de Higo, El Maestro, as they called him, the master, because he could indeed do it all. Played all nine positions, played all nine of them well. He is the only baseball player in the history of our sport to be enshrined into five different countries' baseball halls of fame. Now, he was from Cuba. So he is in the Mexican, Cuban, Venezuelan, Dominican, and in Cooperstown. But it also speaks to that, what you mentioned earlier, that the Negro Leagues didn't care what color you were. You were welcome to play as long as you could play. That was the only measuring stick for them. Can you play? And if you can play, you can play. Well, one year in the Mexican League, the Higo wins the pitching title, Jake. He goes 19-2. and with an 0.90 ERA. The sucker hits 387 that same season and won the batting title. See, that's that's why... That's why we can't put the DH in both leagues. Just because there's just special things that, I mean, I don't know if that a pitcher would ever win another batting title, but like just you never know what's going to happen when a pitcher comes to the plate. No, you don't. And, And the pitchers in the Negro Leagues, because they were such phenomenal athletes, for the better part, were all great hitters. Now, Satchel, he's going to tell you about it if he got a hit. He's going to let everybody know he got a hit. But you start to think about the guys who kind of like the Don Newcombs of the world. When Nuke came over, Nuke, man, they used Nuke as a pinch hitter. Nuke could absolutely rake it. You know, and so, but the players by and large in the Negro Leagues, because the roster sizes weren't as large as the major leagues, they were two-way players. So while the world was rightfully excited about Shohei Atani, Man, that was almost every day in the Negro League. <laughs> you know, that's Martin DeHigo. That's the great Leon Day. That's Hilton Smith. That's Ray Brown. You know, that was commonplace in the Negro Leagues. But the excitement around Shohei gave me the opportunity to illuminate those great two-way stars of the Negro League. Right, right. Oh, man. Yeah, I, I, I actually had never heard of Martin DeHigo. And so I'm, I'm glad that you shared that with us. I learned that from the, the storied uh, series. So uh, talking about the, uh, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, I know that you guys have a new exhibit called Barrier Breakers that is opening up. 
and I wanting wanting to know if you can touch a little bit on that since we since we kind of covered Jackie Robinson, yeah. but then maybe um, quickly tell us you know what is your favorite exhibit at the museum? Yeah, no, we're excited about the Barrier Breaker exhibit, Jake, because what the Barrier Breaker exhibit will do is chronicle all the players who broke their respective major league teams' color barriers from Jackie Robinson in 1947 with Brooklyn through 12 years later when Boston becomes the last to complete the integration cycle when they signed the late Pumpsy Green in 1959. And that surprises a lot of people that it took 12 years before every major league team had at least one black baseball player. And as we so typically do in our society, and we always celebrate the first. And so Jackie has gotten a lot of love and rightfully so. He was that pioneer first. But as you know, Larry Doby would integrate the American League just a few weeks after Jackie, and he's almost an afterthought. And I can tell you this with no level of uncertainty. It didn't get any easier for Pumps and Green in 1959 with Boston than it did for Jackie in 1947. So every one of those players had their trials and tribulations as they were trying to chart a path into pursuing their dream of playing in the major leagues. And so for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, it became inherently important that they not be just footnotes in baseball and American history. And so we are chronicling all of them, you know, as they would so courageously move into major league baseball and shine a spotlight on them and the challenges that they faced. And then also, again, put the focus on what set that stage for integration of our game. And so we're excited about the new exhibition. The final portion of that will be installed this coming Monday. It's a beautiful exhibition. And I think it will be very enlightening and inspirational for a lot of people. But more importantly, it will help those unsung pioneers be recognized as well. And I'll, you know, I tell people all the time, if we don't tell the story, who will? And, and I hope it validates even more so the importance of having a Negro Leagues baseball museum. And the more majority, Jake, of the players who integrated Major League Baseball, not all of them, but the more majority of them came out of the Negro Leagues. Yeah. And, and so we, we talked about kind of how far we've come and that Barrier Breakers exhibit is a good example uh, to display that. But um, just to kind of you know, put things into context. Uh, according to USA Today, at the start of the 2020 season, the percentage of black players in the majors was 7.8% or 80 players. And there were three teams, Arizona Diamondbacks, Kansas City Royals, and Tampa Bay Rays that didn't have a single black player on their opening day roster. And 14 of the 30 teams had two or fewer players. So I guess my question is, what do you think are the reasons why these numbers are so low and how can MLB do a better job of growing this game? Well, and I'll answer the, la the, the last question first. I think Major League Baseball and Major League Baseball's Player Association understand that it's important that this game be made available to Black Americans. A mm -hmm. And they've put a point of emphasis on this, which has actually fostered the relationship that the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, a greater relationship, I should say, with the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, because I do think that, number one, no sport holds to its history the way baseball does. And so it's important that young, aspiring Black kids who are aspiring to play this game understand their place in this game. And that's where the Negro Leagues Museum comes in, because it's important to see yourself in this role. 
right now they don't see themselves. So it's not, this is a very aspirational thing. And, and so if you're going to inspire, you need to see yourself in, in that role. And, and so when they come here, they see people who look just like them, who played this game as well as anybody. But not only, Jake, did they play the game, they owned teams. They were managers and coaches and traveling secretaries and team physicians. They fulfill every role that you can fulfill in the business of the game of baseball. So they have to understand their place in this game. And, you know, we've been trying to pinpoint what happened. And, and I think a lot of these issues are socioeconomic in nature. Here's a sport that once was a blue collar game that has now emerged as a country club sport. You know, it's a very expensive sport to play because it's always played organized now. You know, sad to say those days of sandlot baseball are, are a thing of the past. And it yeah, pains yeah. me to say that. I hope that I'm wrong because I grew up playing sandlot. And you didn't have to have nine kids on a team to play. Whatever the number of kids were, you just divided them up. And then you made up your own rules. If you hit the ball in Miss Jones' yard, you were out. You know, and so you <laughs> played that way. But they don't play that way anymore. So this game became very sophisticated, very organized. When it became so organized, it became very expensive. Man, I know, I know folks who are paying damn near college tuition for their kids yeah. to play summer baseball, to have a pitching coach, to have a hitting coach, to play on these travel teams. And, and that took a lot of kids, particularly in the urban core, out of the equation. And so it's important that we bridge the economic gap that may be preventing some kids from playing our sport. And, and that's what we're trying to do is work with Major League Baseball and the Players Association. We're so proud that right behind the museum is the Kansas City Urban Youth Baseball Academy, an incredible facility where kids can come in and not only be introduced to the game, learn the game, hopefully be nurtured in the game, it's about developing young talent, but it's also about developing great citizens. Because you, as you know, man, you learn a lot about yourself playing this game. This Definitely. is it's a game of failure. You're going to fail yeah. more times than you succeed in this game. And, yeah, and so, yeah. Like life. Yeah. Like life. Absolutely. And, and so we're excited about the prospect. You know, and, and I guess I'm that, you know, the consummate optimist, the glass half full kind of guy. It's probably some of that Buck O'Neill optimism that has spilled over on me, but I am convinced that we're going to see this thing reverse itself. But you know, I really hope so, too. Yeah, but we live in a microwave society. We want it instantly, man. The one thing that we don't have a lot of is patience, and, and it's going to mm -hmm. take time, but as you start to see the minor leagues, and we're starting to see it, more populated with black players because they're starting to be drafted in these early rounds. I think you will start to be able to project when these numbers will slowly but surely start to reverse themselves. So I am and very I really, optimistic. Yeah, I really hope they do because it would be such a shame to miss out on the next Josh Gibson or next Satchel Page. And I, I think we would be doing a lot of people a lot, you know, disservice if, no. if we don't improve this. You think about the greatest um, athletes of the 1980s. For me, Michael Jordan, Bo Jackson, Deion Sanders. And their first love was baseball. Right. Yeah. Their first love was baseball. So those are the kind of athletes that we're talking about, potentially, that we need to drive to our sport again. 
Very true. So in, in, speaking of love for baseball, before I let you go, Bob, uh, our big theme on this show, obviously appreciate, appreciation of baseball and kind of discovering where we found that love for the game. Where did it come from for you? As a kid growing up in little bitty Crawfordville, Georgia. Crawfordville, Georgia, Jake, is east of Atlanta, west of Augusta, uh, about 500 people. Yeah, the museum is almost big as Crawfordville, Georgia. And <laughs> as a kid growing up in tiny Crawfordville, Georgia, man, I fell in love with the game, um, taught myself how to read a box score out of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Henry Aaron was my all-time favorite baseball player, uh, major league ball player, and still is my all-time favorite major league ball player and, and my all-time favorite person that I've ever toured through this museum. Now, keep in mind, man, We've had American presidents. We've had first ladies. We've had a host of athletes and entertainers. And with no disrespect to any of them, they are not Henry Aaron in the eyes of this kid from Crawfordville, Georgia. And and so, but no, I fell in love with the game early on. My, My town was too small to field a high school baseball team. But, you know, like anybody else and all kids, you grew up, Whatever sport was in season, we played uh, in a sandlot capacity. And, and so I ended up getting to Kansas City playing small college basketball. And now I make my living in baseball, albeit baseball history. Living the dream. Bob Kendrick, <laughs> thank you so much. The president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. Thank you so much for joining us for a meeting on the mound. I hope you had a good time because I definitely did. Man, it was it was uh, so much fun. I really appreciate it the opportunity. Please tell your dad I said hello. <laughs> I will. I will. And I, I, I certainly appreciate the opportunity. Thank you guys so much. It's great to meet you both. And, and I hope your travels eventually bring you out here to Kansas City so you can see this place. Definitely want to do that. Yeah. Cross that off the bucket list. Okay. Thanks, guys. See you, Bob. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. <laughs>